Hi, you're listening to the New Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively brings insights from the Indian space activities ecosystem. I'm your host Narayan, the co-founder of India's first space-focused think tank, Spaceport Sarabhai. Guests on the New Space India podcast help you understand space activities related macro and micro trends within India in all aspects including space history, local industry, space science, technology evolution, law and policy, art and more. The New Space India podcast is supported by Dassault Systems, a global leader in providing businesses and people with collaborative virtual environments to enable sustainable innovations. Dassault Systems Solutions supports startups, small and medium scale enterprises and original equipment manufacturers in developing disruptive solutions for space launchers and satellites. Hey Narayan, thank you so much for having me on the New Space India podcast again. It's great to be back here. And hello to everyone listening. I'm a globally published independent space writer and my flagship writing is Moon Monday, which is the world's only newsletter dedicated to covering lunar exploration updates from around the world. I also write an Indian Space Monthly report, which is also the only newsletter of its kind wherein I try to track the progress of the multiple pieces across the Indian space spectrum. So ISRO successfully launched the Chandrayaan-3 spacecraft today and it was a spectacular sight. I was there at the launch view gallery and the intense energy felt there was just amazing. The same thing, I felt the same thing again which I felt during Chandrayaan-2's launch and it's it's been a long wait. Every one of us who has been excited about Chandrayaan 2 and were just sad on the day of its unfortunate crash landing have waited so long for this day to come that we can launch Chandrayaan 3 again and give a second shot at a soft landing on the moon, which is something which is really difficult. Well, let's wait for that date, August 23, and hopefully we go in history as the fourth country in the world to achieve the feat of a lunar landing. Let's not forget that the Chandrayaan-2 mission wasn't a complete failure. It did deploy India's second lunar orbiter successfully, and it continues to provide valuable data not just for lunar science, but also is actually actively helping in planning of future exploration missions, including that of NASA. And I will get to that in a bit later in the podcast. So we only recently got to know from the ISRO chief, Somnath, what exactly happened to the Chandrayaan-2 moon lander and why it failed. Essentially, its five main engines were firing at a slightly greater thrust than expected, which accumulated navigation er errors over time. And as a result of that, at some point, the parameters related to all of those navigation errors surpassed the bounds against which the onboard software was designed and tested. And when you combine that with a distinct requirement that ISRO had built into the system of only having the lander attempt a touchdown in a tight landing ellipse of 500 by 500 meters, despite it clearly being in a non-nominal situation, what actually happened was the lander ended up increasing its velocity while descending so as to reach that very tight landing ellipse and therefore crashed on the moon. So the first difference between the Chandrayaan-3 lander and the Chandrayaan-2 lander is that the former is heavier by about 280 kilograms and 
that is in part attributed to more fuel that it is carrying so that it can better stay on its intended trajectory to the moon's surface even if it does deviate a little bit here and there from the intended path but of course as somnath has already mentioned in the media there are many more redundancies built into the chandrayaan 3 lander to ensure that we have the best possible chance to gracefully touch down this time around this includes several upgrades such as software improvements to accommodate not only sensor failures but have better bounce like we discussed with chandrayaan 2 right now but also have legs which are strengthened to take approximately 50% more shocks from the free fall touchdown at the very final phase and there's also a new velocity sensor which will give both enhanced as well as redundant navigation measurements combine that with numerous ground tests with helicopters and crane tests as well as landing tests of the leg at dedicated simulant facility that ISRO has developed basically ISRO is leaving no stone unturned this time around to ensure that we have a successful touchdown and again go down in history as the only the fourth country to achieve a soft lunar landing chandrayaan 3's mission profile is broadly similar to that of chandrayaan 2 the gslv mark 3 has deployed the chandrayaan 3 combined spacecraft stack which includes the lander and the orbital module into a highly elliptical earth orbit of about 170 by 36000 kilometers and from that point on the orbital module will propel the lander which is still called vikram to the moon and then put it into an orbit around the moon and over the course of more than a week maneuver it into a circular polar orbit of about 100 kilometers altitude from that point on vikram will detach itself from the orbiter and close in on the moon into a 100 by 30 kilometer orbit from that point of being about 30 kilometers above the moon surface vikram will begin on august 23 an autonomous descent wherein it takes inputs continuously of its distance to the surface the velocity at which it is approaching it its orientation as well as imagery that it is seeing and then compares and contrasts that with the onboard imagery and the intended trajectory and based on that orchestrates the firing of its four 800 newton engines as well as the eight attitude control thrusters to be on the intended path uh, hopefully if all goes to plan the solar powered lander will confirm its touchdown on the moon where vikram will be on the moon is interesting the exact location intended is 69 degrees south and 32 east that's from our perspective of the moon it's about at the middle right near the lunar south pole so we can imagine looking up at our moon and imagining vikram being there i think that's going to be an amazing feeling but it's also interesting for many more reasons of course first of all is it's a geologically rich area which is embedded in a larger rocky highland these highland rocky like terrain is something that very few missions have explored in the past but more importantly than that this is the first ever mission globally which is exploring a truly non equatorial or a non near equatorial region and we really do not know the ground truth of the physical nature and characteristics of these region to a precision that's good enough for advanced science and exploration and so in that regard chandrayaan 3 will be an amazing contribution 
how was this landing site selected is also interesting because this time around other than relying on the amazing data from nasa's lunar reconnaissance orbiter mission this time since we also have the chandrayaan 2 orbiter which is very capable and in fact in several areas surpasses the capabilities of lro because of being launched later sure but nevertheless better in some areas because of that fact uh, we are now able to use data from that also to inform our future missions so that's exactly what isro scientists have done with chandrayaan 3 where they have used both lro and chandrayaan 2 orbiter imagery as well as other data and based on that selected a landing site that's not only safe to land on and explore based on engineering constraints for the rover for instance but also be scientifically very valuable at the same time so while everyone is naturally curious about the landing the most and it is fascinating technology wise but i think the science part must not be overlooked and there are certainly very interesting experiments on board both the lander and the rover of chandrayaan 3 so let's talk about that i'll start with the rover because i think it's interesting in many areas the pragyan rover ha- is a 26 kilogram compact class rover so this is about at least 6 to 7 times less massive than the changi u2 rovers by china and certainly like way less massive than the crewed roving vehicles that apollo astronauts used but many of the upcoming moon missions are going to be having this compact class of rovers more which are sub 50 kg ones and pragyan is one of them but it doesn't mean that it cannot do a lot of science it certainly certainly can because miniaturization of scientific instrumentation has been a development that country missions have always demanded and isro has now leaned into that capability with its planetary missions so the pragyan rover has two spectrometers to help scientists determine what elements and minerals make up various kinds of soil as well as rocks in this geologically rich latin region that it explores we expect to find both young as well as old features on the site and that will tell us quite a bit about parts of the evolution of our moon so the laser spectrometer will fire laser pulses off of material that it wants to study and based on the nature of the radiation emitted from it scientists can tell what elements make that material similarly the alpha particle x-ray spectrometer fires from a radioactive source alpha particles and x-rays onto the target and based on the nature of the emitted radiation we can tell what is its elemental makeup however there were two key challenges with the alpha particle x-ray spectrometer in particular that i found very interesting like even for nasa's mars rovers having such a spectrometer they work in the they work in the way that the source needs to be very close to the target material you are studying within a few centimeters of it so for that nasa mars rovers have a traditional robotic arm and the spectrometer is mounted on it but for such a compact rover as pragyan which is mass constrained a robotic arm would not work it will be simply too massive so the clever solution that the team came up with was to have was to have the payload be protruding on the rover rover's body on the front and 
the rover just drives to the target that it wants to study and when it's right above it the payload will be rotated by 90 degrees and so that the spectrometer source is just about five centimeters from the target and be able to do its science and i think that's a very fascinating and clever solution and i was very intrigued to know about that at the same time there was another challenge the radioactive source which is curium 244 isn't straightforward to get well it's only available from russia and even the nasa mars rovers needing the same source have to rely on russia to get that we faced a lot of challenges from uh, for getting that source including resistance from russia as to the nature of what we might be how we might be handling the source and what we might need it for ultimately it took 7 years to procure the curium 244 source for the chandrayaan 2 rover originally and now of course much more smoothly with chandrayaan 3 but yeah i think ultimately these two things should illustrate the scientific depth to which we are willing to go and i think it's great that we have such a spectrometer on board the vikram lander itself hosts equally interesting science experiments i think there's a seismometer to detect moonquakes similar to what nasa did with apollo now major moonquakes is detecting major moonquakes is going to be very less likely for during because the mission length is just one lunar day however the moon does have minor seismic activity all the time so there's a pretty good chance that we would catch some of that and uh, that will help us provide additional clues about the moon's internal structure there's also a plasma experiment and which will measure for the very first time what the near surface plasma on the moon looks like is like and that plasma is created by the charged particles which are constantly coming from the sun and while we have studied plasma globally like for the moon but this is the first time we'll do it in situ so that's very interesting as well uh, nasa is contributing a retro reflector on board which is an upgraded version of the ones left on the moon by apollo astronauts the way this works is that scientists will bounce laser pulses from earth off of the retro reflector on the moon to better understand the gravitational nature of the earth moon system because it really helps you finally understand the exact wobbling of the moon and other physical things like that. So it also gives you an insight into the moon's interior. And the great thing about this experiment is that this is not limited to one lunar day. While the lander might die off after one lunar day because of the very cold lunar night, the retro reflector is a passive instrument. And so like even today, scientists bounce laser pulses off of the retro reflector on the Apollo landers deployed by the Apollo landers and so this can also continue with the Vikram lander so I think that's really amazing. Now comes the instrument which I think is my favorite on the Vikram lander. The lander will insert a thermal probe to about 10 centimeters into the lunar soil and across that probe are 10 temperature sensors roughly evenly spread out and they will provide pristine soil temperature measurements throughout the lunar day and the interesting thing is that this is the first ever in situ thermal profiling of the moon's near subsurface what apollo astronauts did do was dig a hole into the moon about two meters deep, deep and take heat measurements of the interior but the near subsurface is very distinct in terms of its relevance to lunar science 
The reason it is unique is that understanding the thermal profile of the near subsurface means you understand exactly how the sun's heat is propagating from the surface down to the crust and it's ultimately temperatures that dictate the presence, stability and mobility of water, ice and other volatile resources on the moon. So to that end, the experiment will go even further. There's a heater near the probe's tip and which will warm up the soil so that based on the measurements taken by the temperature sensors after that fact, scientists can determine the thermal conductivity of the soil and from it infer its density and physical properties. This is crucial for advanced lunar exploration because again, if temperatures are dictating the present stability and mobility of water on the moon, what this entire experiment helps you do is understand what kind of stability zones exist in the near south surface for such resources. So whenever we have future missions to do extraction of lunar resources or even just studying it for in-situ resource utilization or better characterization of it, this is the kind of data that will benefit from. So what we spoke so far was about the science and technology of Chandrayaan 3. But I think there's an equally interesting aspect of Chandrayaan 3 that might be relevant to more people at large, which is which begins with the fact that Chandrayaan 3 feeds into the global frenzy of sending hardware to the moon, particularly to the South Pole or near the South Pole. The upcoming US Artemis missions, the China's Changi robotic craft, and the majority of other government as well as private endeavors plan to explore the moon's South Pole for the most part, eventually aiming to extract its water, ice, and other resources. This is for primarily two reasons. One, they can potentially commercialize aspects of such operations eventually. Or the second one, which is the fact that if you are able to do in-situ resource utilization, then you can sustain moon missions for much longer because now you don't have to drag every single gram of mass needed for the mission out of Earth's insane gravitational well. So if you can offload at least some of that effort, then that's a great thing. Well, in any case, the thing I'm referring to is that the getting to the moon's surface remains risky. Three out of the four last landing attempts, including Chandrayaan 2, have failed, the other two being Hakuto R and Bereshit. Only China's Changi 5 mission succeeded in those four in those four moon landing attempts. Hopefully, this time around, with all of the redundancies that we spoke of, and I think it's very reasonable to assume high confidence in it that Chandrayaan 3 will succeed. And if it does, it will help keep the momentum for the moon going. And I think that's a very big contribution to the global impetus to explore the moon again. Because failing that, not only it will be harmful for India as its planetary program will be under threat, which is nascent but has a lot of potential. But for the world, it would also mean that while we talk about uh, a lot about going back to the moon and whatnot, uh, multiple failures is only going to cascade into negative effects, which will hamper our ability to sustainably explore the moon. In fact, India's investment in the moon is only growing. For the Chandrayaan program, ISRO developed its own lunar soil simulant facility, 
where it can test a variety of hardware as our ambitions for future lunar activity grows. And that particular lunar soil simulant I'm referring to is indigenously made. So for that, ISRO sourced anorthostic rocks from somewhere within southern India, which have lunar, which are lunar-like rocks. And so once you process them and seal them and so on, you can basically get fine regolith, uh, very similar to that on the moon, against which you can test your hardware in realistic conditions. And that's an investment that is very much appreciated and in, in a way signals the scope of our activities that we are planning in the future. Our next mission to the moon is going to be even more ambitious. India is partnering with Japan to have the Lupex rover directly study water ice on the moon's south pole, very similar to NASA's Viper mission, which will launch next year. Lupex will launch before end of decade, hopefully. And for the project, what we have done, ISRO is providing the lander, Japan is providing the rover and the launch vehicle. And for the instruments on Lupex, there's going to be a symmetric collaboration between India and Japan. There will also be contributions from NASA and ESA. I must note here though that Japan has already approved the mission on their end, but India is yet to do so. The Indian government is expected to do it sometime soon enough though, in any case, at least that's the word on the street. So hopefully that comes around soon enough. In any case, both Lupex and Viper will provide us something unique because uh, all of the data that we have suggesting abundance of water ice on the moon's south pole and relative abundance might in fact is through remote sensing. So we do not really know the ground truth of the situation. And if we do not know as to how the water ice is present on a local scale for a surface mission, like relevant to such activities. So both of these rovers will tell us about the exact feature distribution as well as quantity of water ice accessible in the first few centimeters of the surface that they explore respectively feeds into the one thing that India did last month, which is of course signing the Artemis Accords, which is a US-led lunar governance framework aiming to peacefully manage lunar activity because of the increasing number of global missions being mounted. Now, seeing that both Japan and India are signatories of the Accords, the LUPEX mission will definitely feed critical data into the planning for NASA's Artemis crewed missions. So in fact, Artemis missions will rely on that data. And so that's, I think, a very good thing. And at the same time, there's an opportunity with the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter that India now has more than ever before. You see, the NASA's lunar reconnaissance orbiter is amazing, but it is gracefully aging at about 14 years old, 14 years old now. And it is no longer able to maintain its original polar orbit. But that is precisely the orbit that the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter has. And just like Alaro, Chandrayaan-2's orbiter is also a full-fledged reconnaissance mission. So it has a versatile suite of instruments. And all of those instruments are either on par with Alaro or better in several areas because of, again, being launched later. But nevertheless, so for example, we have an imager that is approximately almost twice as sharp as LRO's best imager, 
So we can do 25 centimeters per pixel imaging of the moon at best and typically 28 to 30 centimeters in our nominal polar altitude of about 100 kilometers, I think. Uh, well, the point is that as NASA mounts these crewed Artemis missions as well as its robotic CLIPS missions, it will need a lot of remote sensing data support. And Elaro's data set is amazing, but there's no new data set of the true South Pole that can be generated other than some skewed views from Elaro. So what will happen is that there will be a dearth of this information. And the Chandrayaan 2 orbiter is in an excellent position to fill this gap. And that is something, in fact, the US scientists have recognized. So if you look at the league clock report, uh, that came out a few months ago, not only are the US scientists urging NASA to have a replacement of LRO, but in that very report have recognized the capabilities of Chandrayaan-2 orbiter being useful to that end. In fact, to illustrate that better, in the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference earlier this month, there have been many presentations on the candidate landing sites for Artemis 3, which is NASA's first crewed mission to the moon and how scientists are going about selecting the best landing site for that mission, considering engineering constraints, as well as the science to be done there. And some of the abstracts included Chandrayaan-2 orbiter data as part of that analysis that they did. For example, one group by Elaro from the Elaro team used the synthetic aperture radar data from the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter to better characterize hazards on the Artemis 3 landing sites. Isn't that amazing? Like we can, uh, we can contribute greatly to, uh, to returning humans to the moon and derive a lot of operational knowledge for ourselves from it by working with experienced teams and at the same time play a very important role in shaping the future of lunar resource extraction as and when it becomes feasible. So so with the signing of the Artemis Accords, this is a really excellent opportunity for India to leverage the capabilities of the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter and act on it so that we can have a better shaping of the future at our moon and our contribution in it. For all the optimism though, there is a very huge catch. ISRO's upcoming aspiring space science missions have been facing nothing but delays, and that includes uh, Chandrayaan-3 itself and Aditya L1 and so on. And these, this is due to budget shortages, but also due to overshadowing priorities. For example, the GSLV Mark III destined for Chandrayaan-2 earlier this year in favor of the commercial launches for OneWeb satellites. Similarly, ISRO could not provide the Mark III for the Shukrayan Venus mission, even in its design phase, in fact, because the Mark III is supposed to be busy serving the human spaceflight program as well as the commission needs. Because of which the Shukran team had to essentially redo the design for a much less capable Mark II rocket. Anyway, the point is that because of this, like we are not really going to progress a lot in our space science and technology endeavors unless and until we have uh, budgets and output to show for it. So while India's new space policy, which was out in April, does encourage ISRO to, quote, undertake missions on in-situ resource utilization and celestial prospecting, end quote, ultimately the failure to increase such science and technology outputs for real wouldn't allow India to sufficiently leverage the Artemis Accords and relevant teams to help shape our future at the moon.
So ultimately, one thing is clear. The success of Astros Chandra and three moon lander will be very critical for anchoring India's long-term role in both moon exploration and its governance, ultimately. So Chandra and three mission is not just about the landing itself. It's much more than that. It's connected to a whole line of ambitious goals as well as futures that we could see for ourselves as we grow into a capable science and technology nation. So let's hope for the best. Thanks again, Narayan, for having me on the podcast again. It's really great to talk about Chandrayaan 3. And I'm, of course, I'm always happy to talk about lunar exploration at large. To the listeners, if you did enjoy this episode, I request you to consider subscribing to my blog, wherein I share such updates on lunar exploration from around the world every single week. And also, of course, I write the Indian Space Monthly to cover the progress of Indian space at large as well. So I hope that interested you and let me know what you think. My email ID is available on my website and I would very much like to hear from you. Thank you for listening in to this episode of the New Space India podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share this episode with anyone you believe will enjoy listening to it. You'll be able to find the New Space India podcast in any of the podcasting platforms that you may be using including Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, and others. Do subscribe to the podcast in case you want to receive new episodes automatically. I'm grateful if you're able to leave a rating for the podcast, which will help others discover it. Thank you for listening in again, and the next episode will be out in the next two weeks as usual.